baby. That's right. Big pimpin', spinning chicken. G G G G G. You know why? Love them, love them, love them, leave them, but I don't trust or need them. Take them out the hood, keep them looking good. With diamond cuffs and a freezer. First time they bust, I'm freezing. Talk about what's the reasons? I'm a pimpin' every sense in the word. My mind better trust and believe them. In the cup where I keep them. Till I need to work, till I need to beat it up. And it's BB, then I'm picking them up. Then I play when they cook in the truck. <laughs> Many chicks want to put chicken fists in cups. Divorce them and split his bucks. Just because you got good sex, I'ma break bread so you can be living it up. Ah, cost with nothing. Y'all be fronting. Me give my heart to a woman. Not for nothing. Never happened. I'll be and welcome to this week's episode of the Football and More podcast with Ethan Hammerman. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. The newly renamed podcast, we used to be known as the Hammer Time podcast, but I decided to make a change as we came upon our one-year anniversary. Sorry for not having an episode this past week. I actually recorded a really, really good one with a Ryan Burns at Football Sickness on Twitter, and somehow Audacity erased the entire thing. So... Unfortunately, that episode will be lost to the ages, but I'm going to have him on again soon. Uh, we, we had a really good conversation about the Cleveland Browns and a lot of other things, so definitely someone I want to have on again. And this week's guest is someone who I really like. I first met him in Mobile at the Senior Bowl, uh, and I didn't really know him before then, but I will say there there are a lot of very... Uh, I mean, there are a lot of personalities out there. You know, there are some people who aren't so nice. There's people who are super nice. And uh, this guy is one of the best hype men I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, every time he's around people, he just, like, pumps everyone up and brings so much positivity. And it's really great to have him on the show. Um, and he does a lot of things. And Andy Singleton, I'm going to let you talk about all the things that you do. But, yeah, welcome to the show. This is great to have you. I I, uh, I appreciate being on. I appreciate that intro. And uh, where were you at certain times in my life when I needed you, when I was getting kind of uh, shelled from being um, not the nicest guy in the world? I, I appreciate that warm intro. Uh, and I can totally relate to, uh, as being somebody that does interview people as well, having shows that something happens, whether it be a program error or failure to press the record button, as was the case in my situation when I had Denny Carter on. Um, but yes, uh, happy to be here with you and uh, looking forward to talking about a whole bunch of things, football and more. Yeah, football and more is what it's all about. I will say, thankfully, this is only the second time where I've run into this issue where something didn't record. The only other time was when I had a three-person panel on, and it was me, and it was Alex Gelhar from NFL.com, and it was a Coley Mick from Barstool. And then we each had them on separately, and it was just as good. So I, you know, when one door closes, another door opens. But yeah, as I said earlier, I met you at the Senior Bowl. Um, that was the first time I met you. I think we've both been there for each of the past two years. Uh, yes. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get down there this year, but I'm still trying to work it out. So keep an eye out on that. But I guess just to start uh, from the beginning, what really made you love football in the first place? Wow. That's a loaded question because there's so many different answers and routes we can go with this. I was always a uh, basketball player from you know Brooklyn, New York, and uh, when I got to high school, I was still very undersized and wanted to play football. I had the attitude and tenacity to play, but I was just getting abused and realized this is not good for my winter activities, which you know 
it was basketball and uh, I, I didn't want to have a broken leg or, you know, wrist or arm or anything like that. So I quickly got out of uh, playing football and I don't know, just, you know, it's just, it, it's, to me, it's the most succinct. I'm, I'm a guy that likes symmetry and it's just the most succinct and easy to follow sport for me that I, I think, and I think that's why it, um, you know, translates so well to, so many millions of people because you know the way it's just set up you, you, you got the one game a week it that's easy enough to follow um you, you know just the whole the brutality of it is is endearing to men women you know it's like the gladiator sport that we have today so there's a lot of reasons why people are attracted to football and you know it's just easy enough to fall in love with and to write about that it, really the, the thing that came down was when i started writing I was writing all kinds of different editorial articles, and when I started writing football stuff, it was ten times the amount of you know hits and views I was getting. So it was clear to see that football was the route I should really kind of prioritize if I wanted to have any success in what uh, in this industry or field. So you said you were starting to write a whole bunch of other things, and you sort of shifted into football. So what is your background as a writer? Uh, what what did you work on? Did you have multiple sites you're working on, or what sort of was your background there? Yeah, so I, I literally got into writing because I had been told throughout my entire life I was a good writer. My father's a lawyer. My mother is a published PhD in nursing. So I, you know, I had, you know, I, I basically was, you know, most generations try to outdo their parents. I, I was the one that didn't, that fell far from, uh, you know, equaling my parents. But, uh, I, I'm a career firefighter. I got 15 years on the job in New York City. I work in Brooklyn, New York. And, uh, Got into writing about four years ago now, just, you know, kind of as a goof. I was, you know, entering a dynasty baseball league. And as I was doing all this research of, you know, prospects that, you know, I'd never heard of, started seeing all these different sites that I never knew existed. And just everybody seemed to be looking for writers. So I said, hey, I'll throw my hat in the ring. I was told I was a good writer. And sure enough, somebody said, hey, you want to write for us? And I don't want to say the name of that site because... I really don't uh, have too much I want to plug their way at this point. But uh, um, I basically, they said, hey, you could write for us. And I, you know, here I thought I was pulling the wool over their eyes. But, you know, if, if you're somebody, I'll tell you this, whoever's listening to this, if you're somebody that enjoys writing and has a passion for sports, somebody will give you an opportunity. Uh, so don't think you can't do it. But at the same time, uh it, it's not for everybody either. And you can see there's a lot of people bumping into each other in this industry because there's just, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a very saturated market. So, um, but that was how I got into writing. And then it just kind of has, has morphed into all these different directions from uh, writing editorial stuff to writing fantasy related articles, covering prospects, doing a podcast, uh, being an editor for an up and coming site that wound up failing. Uh, so with that, you know, putting a whole writing team together and content manager and all that kind of stuff. And now I'm basically running a YouTube channel I started and I've got, I've gotten into video editing and doing a, a weekly video show. So I, I've come a long way in a very short period of time, but, um, the fire and the passion are still there. So it, it keeps me going on a daily basis. Yeah. And I, I know when I worked with, um, I used to work at the yes network and first of all, I can definitely echo everything that you said about how saturated the market is. It's really, really tough. Um, and and the, the thing about writing is that 
there are so many people out there who will do it for free that it just ruins it for people who actually want to do it to get paid. And I feel like I'm pretty lucky where I don't need at this point in my life to rely on writing to make a full income, but it's something that I've definitely thought about making that transition. And it's just such a crowded market. It's just really, really um, intense. And I honestly like podcasting and writing is what I love to do. But if you want to follow that path full time, it's just, it's a very, very daunting endeavor. But what I was saying, yeah. No, no, I was going to say it really is. And you know, probably the biggest hurdle that I've, you know, noticed is, and it, it becomes more paramount in the video work. And, you know, from being from yes, I'm sure you can attest to this. It's such a time sensitive industry that you really have to be ready to go 24 hours a day. Um, so you kind of got to figure out, you know, am I going to really throw everything I have into this story or article or piece, or am I going to let that one go? Uh, because I know I'm not going to be able to, you know, finish it in, in the time it's needed before it's, you know, old news at that point. Yeah, I mean, the dude at Yes, I, who I really emulated, actually, I'll, I'll give a shout-out to, to two guys at Yes, I really emulated. Or, you know what, I'm going to do three, why not? Yes was yes is good people. If you're a Yankee fan or just love baseball, um, the Yes Network's a great place to work. But my managing editor, Kevin Sullivan, um, was really good about getting me on the path of um, just, like, seeing what's news, what's not, and he really empowered me. I remember when I was there, I pretty much started their Arsenal coverage by myself because they had the rights to Arsenal and no one was covering it. And um, he was great. And then Chris Sheeran, who... I think does their on-air stuff was also the nicest guy. But the dude who I was thinking of more was a Joe Oriema, who I believe now is at Bleacher Report. But he had been there for like 10 years before I got there. And all he did was just do content, and he experimented with everything. He did social, he did video, he did audio. And I, I remember it sticks out in my mind how much he was doing. And, you know, that's what you got to do. You have to be flexible. Like... I remember when everyone was doing Google Hangouts, and Google Hangouts were the thing, and I, I it just wasn't something that really appealed to me after a while, because I was like, I'm not going to sit down and watch, like, two hours worth of people talking on the screen. Like, it's not necessarily what I want to do, which is why I want to do the podcast. And in the past year, after I did the podcast, it seems like there's a lot of other people doing podcasts, too. So I think just having a really diverse skill set and being open to new challenges and new things is, is what you really have to do. And it sounds like you're there too. Yeah. And, and I'm learning with the video. I mean, originally my idea for getting into video is that, you know, I have two teenage sons and, you know, everything that they are into is all video related, whether it's YouTube or Vine or whatever. And I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is the way to go. And not that many people in the fantasy industry are doing video stuff. So absolutely. And, you know, you get into it and you, you realize like you said, I don't. People don't want to sit there and watch two people just talking when they can listen to it. So, you know, trying to add all the extra features like, you know, graphics or, you know, tickers on the bottom or stat, you know, uh, screens or things like that. You start weighing into how much actual work goes into something that's being seen for literally thirty seconds. And you know, is it worth it? Um, hopefully, it pays off down the road. But at this point, it's like. Maybe the podcast would just be easier. So, yeah, and and you definitely have to to find that balance. And you're doing so many different things. So we're going to transition now from all the work you're doing to what we're seeing this year in football. 
To date, what are your thoughts on the season so far? Are we talking NFL? Are we We're, talking college? Oh, I we can talk anything. I, I want to hear all the takes. Yeah. Uh, wow. There's a lot of good teams, and there's a lot of teams that you want to think are good that are really bad. You know, you, you look you look at some of these records. I, I was looking the other day, just overall standings and what the playoff picture is looking like, and I, I haven't seen the adjustments since you know this past week's uh, finals. But leading up to this weekend, it was kind of you know, things could change, but it was almost like each conference was already set with the seedings and who were the six teams that were going to make it. And I just kind of remember thinking to myself, wow, this seems really early to have this kind of all wrapped up, but it's just kind of that it's to me, it's been that way. It's when you got the teams at the top and the teams at the bottom. Um, That's my over, I was my overall take on the league on the whole uh, more pressing, though, would be the news that broke today that Jeff Fisher was finally released, which is tremendously exciting for me uh, just because I look at that team and I just feel like it is it has so much potential and it was just being driven into or driven off a cliff, rather, with uh, Fisher's conservatism. So I'm really excited to see um, what happens now going forward in L.A., um, well, I'm curious what your take is on, on all that news breaking. The biggest issue is that they don't have a first-round pick next year because they spent it on Jared Goff. And mm-hmm. I think this team, there's still a few players away. Like, I was thinking about other bad teams that I feel like are closer to where the Rams needed to be. And I remember, like, when the Bucks took Jameis last year and then they ended up shifting coaches, you can tell you could tell that they weren't that many pieces away from being a good team. And I think they're at the point now where you can say that they're a pretty good team. Uh, Tennessee. Tennessee had, first of all, they had a fantastic draft with what they ended up getting from the Rams. I mean, Conklin's been a star. Henry's been really, really good. And uh, the rest of the players have played pretty well, too. I think once they get a little bit stronger in the secondary, they're going to be good to go. But... You look at those teams that were bad recently, and then you look at the Rams, and you just feel so much worse about the Rams. I think that part of the issue is they don't have a lot of weapons on offense, and Tavon Austin isn't the kind of guy who you could uh, run your offense through. Todd Gurley, I still think he's good, but he has not had a good season uh, for whatever reason. And I think it's going to be tough to get a really good coach there. I think it's going to be tough for... The Josh McDaniels and Kyle Shanahan's in the world to look at the Los Angeles job and say, I should definitely go here. It's a much better situation than I'm in right now because McDaniels has that New England position for as long as he wants and he could wait for a better job to open up. And Shanahan is going to be really, really highly regarded as well. And I'm not even sure that Kyle Shanahan is going to be a great head coach right away because I think he's the kind of guy who his ego could clash with a lot of people. Um, He's a little bit of an interesting guy. But, yeah, I mean, I think that's overall my thought. I I do wonder who their new coach is going to be. It wouldn't shock me if – it wouldn't shock me to go for a college coach. Uh, Well, you know, it's it's funny because I tweeted out, and I have the complete opposite take as you uh, on the Rams, you know, situation. I think the team is actually a lot closer than – what it would appear to be right now. I, I think the, the offensive line is a little underrated. It was just two years ago that they were 
being, you know, uh, you know, uh, talked about as one of the better lines in the league. The defense has been pretty solid. You got some dynamic players on, on both, you know, both sides of the ball, as you mentioned. Uh, I think the whole level uh, was just playing down and just progressively got worse as the season was going. I think that was directly tied to the to the coach. But what I was going to say was I, I tweeted out shortly after, if only Lane Kiffin could have waited another hour. Uh, I think that was a perfect position for him if he was looking for a head coaching job and maybe even to go back to the NFL. I think he's the kind of guy, you know, Kroenke would gamble on, the right city for him. And I, I think it needs to be a young, gamb- you know, risk-taking kind of uh coach that winds up in LA whether it be the offensive coordinator uh, or the head coach but anyway I, I, I don't mean to go off on a complete Rams topic here especially us being in New England but uh, it was you know late, late breaking news on the, on the team that I think is pretty uh, pretty enigmatic with both Goff and Gurley having gone very high picks in the last two years. Speaking of since we're recording this during the, uh, the Monday night game the Patriots just got a safety so they're up two to nothing. That's I see fun. that. I see that. Yeah, Mal- Malcolm Brown. I-, I like Malcolm Brown. He's a good guy. Um, no, I'm totally down to talk about current events though, and talk about the Rams. And I, my only issue with saying the offensive line is good is I do wonder what that means about Todd Gurley. So, do we think that Todd Gurley maybe wasn't quite as good as we originally thought, or do you think it's just a mental block he had with Jeff Fisher? I think it's basically what his comment, you know, echoing his comments of them looking like a middle school team. I, I think that has a lot of merit and value. Uh, I, I, I do think he's as good as what we thought. You know, we've seen that in spurts. I just think the whole team has kind of been very uninspired. Uh, I actually saw them. I was touring some colleges with my son, and we were in Tampa. So we went to the uh, Tampa Rams game, and we're, we're fortunate enough to get great seats. So. I was behind the Rams bench the whole uh, the whole afternoon, in like the third row, and got to really see some of the inner workings. And it was very laid back. It was, you know, it seemed like it was a preseason game. Now, I don't know if that was just the atmosphere of being in Tampa or the culture of the team itself, but um, nobody really seemed to be having fun. It seemed to be kind of, you know, pretty boring, I would say. Uh, and I kind of get that from Jeff Fisher, just his whole personality. Don't get me wrong. I, I think he's you know very engaging as a human being. Uh, I, I think he's got a lot of good stories to tell based on his life and his career. But as far as a head coach, like he, he just you know, was lacking that that you know that oomph to get his team excited. And you know you want your leader to be the guy that you know people will run through a wall for you. And I just did not get that feeling at all from the Rams or from Jeff Fisher. And it's a very easy thing to. Happen. You look at the Jets. The Jets were poised to go to the Super Bowl this year. Vet- Veteran-laden team, a uh, lot of excitement. You know, the holdout with Ryan Fitzpatrick kind of you know gets everything off on a sour note. Then Decker gets injured. Uh, I mean, the season just went from you know beautiful to horrible in, in the snap of a finger, and it just got progressively worse to the point that you know people will tell you Revis looks like he's not even playing at this point. Um, so I think things could change very, very, very quickly in L.A. And I think uh, the overall tone and feeling of what people see that team to be is uh, a little misguided, I would say. We're going to get to the Jets. One college coach, though, who I think should be getting more NFL looks just because now he has two teams that he's really built up. 
in college is Mike McIntyre for Colorado. Yeah. Because I, he built uh, up San Jose State from nothing, and now he built up Colorado from nothing. And, I mean, those teams were in bad shape when he got there. And he made them both good teams, and I think he's the kind of guy who um, you just sort of wonder. He does seem like a program kind of person where there aren't a lot of people who leave early. There aren't a lot of people who don't buy into the system. I wonder what he could do with an NFL schedule rather than college schedule. That's just my, my random, maybe he could be a better NFL coach than college coach thought. But no, that's, that's a great call by you. I, I was amazed by how good Colorado was consistently this entire you know season. Seth uh, Lufau is one of my, uh, my personal favorites. I'm actually hoping he accepts the, uh, the uh, invite to the Senior Bowl so we get a chance to see him down there. But, yeah, I, I, I would – Certainly echo what you said and, and welcome uh, an opportunity at a head coaching position in the NFL. I believe that he did get the invite and accepted. No, so, he hasn't accepted yet. He was personally invited by Phil Savage. And uh, as, as of the last time I know, which was this afternoon, still hadn't uh, accepted. Oh, I thought they tweeted it out from the account. Maybe I misread that. But I'm also a huge fan of Lufau. I... I think that he's going to get drafted a little bit lower than he should. And in terms of tools, there might not be – I don't think that there's two other quarterbacks in this class that have the tools he has. I mean, yeah. Kaiser does, but I I think Lee Fowl could be really, really good. He had a really bad game against uh, um, Washington, but otherwise I think that – and he was injured, so I give him a little bit of a free pass on that. But otherwise he has everything else that you want. But yeah, the Jets were weird to me. I thought the Jets were going to be very good this year. And it did surprise me a lot to see how much they've struggled. And I'd love to hear your thoughts because to me, it it sort of seemed like... First of all, that Revis contract was not a good contract when he signed it. Uh, he He clearly lost a step in New England. That was why they picked McCourty over him. And... Uh, even at the time, like, I was totally fine with us not signing Revis. But defense aside, because I think that the front seven does mask a lot of the issue the back four might have, I, I, to me it just was surprising how lazy the team was at the quarterback position. Um, I don't understand how they can just, like, play this staring contest with Ryan Fitzpatrick and not look for a better player. And then you draft Christian Hackenberg, who I think everyone pretty much agrees is just terabad. I just yeah. don't understand it. Like, why, why do you think it came to this? I thought Bulls was a good coach before this year. I thought Gailey was a good coordinator, too. And it seems like everything just went downhill. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily want to speak horribly about Bulls because, you know, he seems like a great guy. He seems like a nice guy. But it goes back to what I was saying about Fisher. He just seems so very blah and you know very mundane and not very excitable uh, uh you know you hear all his you know post-game press conferences and you know it just he just seems very mellow and you know some in some places that's good in other places it's not i don't know how he is obviously i'm not on the team i'm not in the locker room for you know team only meetings and stuff but from what you can see from the outside uh it, it just doesn't seem like the kind of guy you want uh you know, that's going to get people running through walls for him. Let's, you know, put it that way. Um, you know, as as we progress in this industry, you and I, 
and you know go to things like Senior Bowl and get to talk to these coaches and players firsthand. You start to really get a feel for why you know certain writers who you know we have been doing this for a long time that we you know grew up on and things like that. Why sometimes they don't necessarily say what we feel might be necessary to say uh, about a certain player. And my point with that is, you know, we we forget how much emotion is involved and that these are people, um, you know. So I, I think that is the first thing to get overlooked by the casual fan or observer when you're watching games, that you just forget that these are real people. So, you know, with the situation like what I was saying with the Jets, I mean, losing Harrison, especially across town to the Giants, was a big deal uh, in the offseason, I thought. I mean, he was probably then, last year, and still is now, probably one of the best run-stopping stop, defensive tackles in the league. And you just let him walk away. And to your, you know, the, the, the team you're competing for headlines with in the local papers. Then, as you mentioned, the Ryan Fitzpatrick holdout. That, you know, you're having a staring contest with a guy that had really no leverage because no other teams are really showing interest in him. So you want to take this long to lock up the deal, and he wanted to be that casual and cavalier about it and think that, yeah, I'm, I'm a veteran. I'm good enough to not have to show up to off-season you know, season things. It really starts to hurt the morale before you've even played a game, before you've even showed up for a training camp. Um, you know, the Decker injury didn't help. Uh, a lot of things just soured real quick. And then in the draft pick, the Hackenberg pick, I mean, they, they've just really set themselves up in a horrible, horrible, horrible position. You've now gone Geno Smith, Bryce Petty, and Christian Hackenberg, none of whom you feel confident in as the future. So can you really go quarterback in the draft again? Um, you know, it's it's really really in a horrible position if you're Mike McCagney right now. Um, I think if you're him, you basically just – you know, get rid of Petty and Smith if you want to draft a quarterback. Just say, those weren't my guys. I'm doing things my way now. You want to put Hackenberg on me, put it on me. But, uh, you know, from going forward, I'm, I'm going with a guy that I really want. And, uh, again, the problem with that is you took Hackenberg so high last year that kind of points to him being one of your guys. So it's not a situation. It's such a veteran team. It's not, it's not an easy fix. There are – you know, a couple young pieces. I'm more surprised by their young receiving core than anything else. I think there are pieces to work with there. And then Nunwa, uh, Marshall, Peak, um, was never a big fan of Devin, uh, Devin Smith. Still not. Um, that was, an, you know, another wasted pick. So, I, I don't know. There's, to me, and I'm not trying to sound like the, the typical pessimistic Jet fan, but to me there's really a lot more holes on this team than building blocks for, you know, any kind of a quick turnaround. Yeah, when healthy, Devin Smith is probably the fifth best wide receiver on the Jets right now, right? Because you have Marshall, you have Decker, you have Anunua, who's someone who I've loved forever. And um, Robbie Anderson's also really good. And he was good in college, too. (laughs) That's pretty bad. There was a point. He's he's got some upside, but, you know, they're different players. But I, I equate Robbie Anderson... To Clyde Gates, and if you remember, Clyde oh. Gates went around the AFC East a few years ago, and couldn't make any other roster, and all of a sudden was like the Jets' number one wide receiver, like midway through the season. I'm going back like three or four years now. <laughs> uh, you know that that's kind of to me like what Robbie Anderson is. Like 
um, not the guy you want to bank on building your receiving core around. Uh, if he has some, you know, surprising games, like, you know, if he flashes here and there, great. But I don't think he's a steady enough option uh, long-term or, you know, week-to-week, let's say. There have been a few receivers like that. Like, David Nelson sticks out. I think he was on a couple of the teams in the division. Yes. They just go from, like, AFC East to AFC East team. It's kind of funny. Yes. Yes. He was actually one of their better receivers for a while. He's kind of like that hybrid tight end, uh, you know, slot receiver. And uh, worked out well for the Jets. But, yeah, like you said, like, it's not really it's, – it's, it's, um, there's another guy right now that's uh, – why can't I think of his name right now? I think he's on Patriots now. Uh, uh, when it comes to my mind, I'll, I'll get Greg Greg Salas. I'm thinking of. Is he still oh, in New England? Oh no, yeah, he is not in the Patriots anymore. But he was in the Patriots okay. for a while. Yeah, exactly. So that was you know uh, a a jet star for a couple weeks. <laughs> you know. Um. Yeah. Just to end off this segment. Um. What are your thoughts on some of the players that we've heard announced so far in the Senior Bowl? I am super excited. This is going to be my third. I'm already booked to go. I feel like every year I learn a little bit more about, you know, just how to navigate, you know, down there and what I want to try to accomplish and things of that nature. I usually am always initially attracted to the skill positions and most notably wide receiver. So I'm super excited when I first look at this list. Like, you know, you got Ed Atow, Cooper Cup, Josh Reynolds, uh, D.D. Westbrook. These guys are all committed. They'll be there. Uh, then another guy who, you know, when I started, I'm just starting now to get into, you know, going back and looking at film um, of a lot of the, you know, top prospects. And uh, Mitch Trubisky, who's getting a lot of hype as an early-round quarterback, um, when you go back and watch him, there's going to be one guy that really catches your eye. And I'm speaking of Ryan Switzer, uh, you know, a small statured Cole Beasley type of uh, wide receiver at North Carolina. And he's committed to the senior bowl. He, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch some uh, either Trubisky or Switzer or just North Carolina tape. And you'll, you'll be pretty impressed. This kid make, has made a ton of plays in college. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of guys I'm excited to see. Uh, you got a couple big quarterbacks. You got Davis Webb showing up, uh, as we were talking about, Lou Fowl. So, there's, you know, there's going to be guys coming out of there that we're not talking about now, that in a month from now, a month and a half from now, uh, are going to be getting a lot of buzz. I, of course, I know Ryan Switzer. I'm a Patriots fan. He is a Patriots-type receiver. Uh, so, I think that he could definitely end up being an interesting player. For sure. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, let's move on to the society portion. Or, that's what I used to call it. Now it's just called more. We were talking about football, we're going to get to more. Um, yeah, you said you wanted to talk about PTSD. And I've had a couple of other guests on here, Ben Albright and Uncle Chaps, who are both veterans. Um, and they both spoke a little bit to their experiences with PS- PTSD. So I was just wondering, uh, why is this issue important to you, and what experience have you had to make it important to you? Yeah, so the Chaps interview was actually, you know, what made me think of, you know, talking about this. 
uh, when you told me you wanted to, you know, talk about something in this fashion. And um, I just recently had something happen to me personally, not kind of indirectly, uh, to one of my mother's good friends. And, um, you know, being in the line of work I'm in, you know, it's different than soldiers, but we also see, you know, a lot of hairy stuff and, you know, compartmentalized things and, you know, suppressed emotions and feelings and thoughts and things like that. And, you know, there's several people I know personally that, you know, they, they've done 20, 30, 40 years as a firefighter, never talked about certain things. And then all of a sudden when they're retired and they feel like they're off the clock, just, you know, uh, it, it's like a waterfall, uh, avalanche of, of emotions and stories and, you know, things they had never mentioned. And it's just kind of like feeling the freedom to do that kind of stuff. That's kind of, in some ways, the good aspect of it, where people feel like, okay, now now I can get this off my chest, and maybe that's a good thing. Uh, what I see with a lot of soldiers, and I'll get into my mother's friend in a minute, was, uh, you know, with the with the post-traumatic stress disorder stuff, they don't, never really seem to feel that, that, uh, that green light, kind of, where, okay, now it's okay to talk about this. And that, to me, is a huge difference. Um, and Something that, you know, we as Americans all need to be kind of more in tune with and aware of and, you know, kind of pay attention to more because it's it's really affecting a lot of people and a lot of people that have done a lot of good things for everybody in this country, you know. Um, just to touch real quick on it, my, my mother's friend, his name was Luis Carlos Montalvin, and he was a 17-year uh, Army captain. He was a veteran. Uh, he'd served two tours in Iraq, and uh, he was severely suffering. He was suffering severely from PTSD. And basically what happened with him was he was given a service dog to help with some therapy. Uh, his dog was named Tuesday. And um, Tuesday was able to kind of give him a lot of just peace and, and, and come out of his shell and deal with society and really got him back on his feet. And uh, he wrote a couple books about it. He's a best-selling author on a couple of the books he wrote. Um, but he actually, unfortunately, about a week and a half ago, passed. And it was a little cloudy at first because just the scenario leading up to how it happened. Apparently, you know, he left Tuesday to serve his dog with a family in New York. And he went to uh, San Antonio where he had some friends and family. And... Apparently text one of them, you know, that he wasn't doing so well and then was found uh, in his in his hotel room face down in a pool of water in the bathroom. So it all kind of seemed very suspicious of did he take his own life because he was suffering from PTSD or was there something else going on? And, and it seems as though it was more he had severe heart trouble. Um, but just <laughs> I don't know how I'm trying to phrase this, but just the fact that uh, the position he was in really opened up a lot of eyes to PTSD and the work he's done with, uh, with service dogs. Um, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think how I want to phrase this best, but uh, anyway, he, the, the working with the service dogs has really allowed a lot of people relief that they didn't know existed and wouldn't have, normally thought to look in that direction is, is I guess what I'm trying to say. 
first of all, thank you for sharing that story. That's really uh, important to hear. And I definitely know that suicide is a very serious issue for a lot of veterans who suffer from PTSD. I know I've seen chaps tweet about it. I think recently he tweeted that he had lost someone close to him who was in his, uh, I'm not exactly sure of the nomenclature, so you're going to have to forgive me, but who was a Marine with him. And certain things that we don't really um, think about come up all the time in weird ways with veterans with PTSD. Uh, For example, when I was talking to chaps on the show, um, one thing that he had mentioned, it was right around July 4th, and he mentioned the fireworks, that if you shoot fireworks and you know any veterans, you should talk to them beforehand. And it's just like, those are the small things. And I know that in America, there's a really strong culture of honoring those who fought for our country, which I think is really important. But there are different ways that we can honor these people. And it isn't just about celebrating like Veterans Day or Memorial Day. It's also about just like the small little things we can do to help people. And uh, yeah, I mean, anything to help people with PTSD, I think is really useful. So you were talking about service dogs. Are there any other things that you've seen can be particularly helpful to those who have PTSD or any other thoughts that you can share about those who you know in your experience who suffer from PTSD? Yeah, and it's funny because it'll kind of come full circle, but I I was going to say, you know, one thing that it's not just PTSD, it's any, any kind of depression or, you know, suppression of feelings or whatever. And that brings it full circle to what you and I kind of got into this. And that's with writing. I mean, it seems silly, but just sometimes, you know, just putting your thoughts down on paper is helpful enough to get it off of your chest. It, it, it really PTSD is a lot different than kind of like depression uh, in in a lot of ways. Just in the sense that, like you said, there's certain things that could trigger emotions, like fireworks, for instance, and it could you know bring you back to feeling like you're in a completely different place in the world. Um, uh, but there there are other aspects of it as far as you know, like like in, in particular, my mother's friend uh, Luis, he had trouble even just getting out of his apartment and just dealing with society and just walking around and seeing people. That was very, very disturbing and traumatic for him. Uh, he, you know, he would talk about how it would take him hours just to be able to get the courage to walk outside a half a block to the liquor store uh, to try to help him, you know, avoid, you know, those kinds of feelings. Um, you know, so even something as simple as just, you know, writing your thoughts down and just getting it off, uh, getting it off your chest. Um, you know, maybe, helpful for some uh and and you'd be surprised at how sometimes little things help big you know help help relieve a lot uh i'm not saying that's an end-all be-all um but as is what he's discovered with the service dogs and you know why i would like to talk about that for a minute if if you allow me to to share with your audience is that um you know you wouldn't normally think of a service dog as something that would help with PTSD, you know, you, you see them being used for, you know, blind people, uh, deaf people, things like that, to, you know, help bridge a gap. But what's amazing about the dogs is they, they really are helping um, in, in a 
large way with people with PTSD because as Luis would say, it was his barrier to the world. Like he felt protected. He felt like he had somebody with him. He felt like he was part of something with his dog Tuesday, uh, that they were a team that he wasn't doing it on his own. And that, you know, it's, it's an emotional thing. It's, it's a lot of, you know, this is, is a mental thing. Whatever we can do to, to, you know, change how we perceive things or see things, if it helps us in, the, in, in a beneficial way, then it's something that, hey, maybe we should all be trying. And, uh, you know, that, that's what's going on with the, uh, with the dogs, with the, uh, the name of the foundation that he was working with that I would like to share. They're actually located in Connecticut, so our, our part of the world, but it's uh, ECAD, which is Educated Canines Assisting with Disabilities. And uh, if anybody's interested, you know, check them out and see, if, you know, if you – can help in any way and helping them expand their, uh, their reach. And definitely I will make sure that, uh, when I post this podcast, I'll tweet out a link to that as well. So anyone can find more information about it. I kind of want to transition a bit because as you mentioned earlier, you are a firefighter. You've been a firefighter for 15 years. So I have to ask because 15 years is a pretty perfect number considering where you're from and, what happened on September 11, 2001. Was that what originally inspired you to become a firefighter? You know, it's, uh, it's, I have a very different and unique story as far as that goes. Uh, I'll be happy to share it with you, but, um, it, it, it almost will sound kind of made up, but it's, Oh, it actually is, is the case and the truth. Uh, Let's hear it. I, I graduated college and I was bouncing around different jobs uh, really had no direction or, you know, career goals or anything. I was working at Enterprise Rent-A-Car at the time. Um, and I heard a commercial for the fire department on Hot 97, which if anybody's ever been to New York, you know Hot 97. Mm-hmm. And uh, Angie Martinez basically saying, go to your public library and get an application for the fire department. And I had no reason not to. So I did that. I filled out an application. Uh, I did really well on the written test, uh, proceeded to the physical, did really well on that, um, basically got a high list number and was ready to go to the fire department uh, if I wanted to. I really didn't think I wanted to at the time. I was like, meh, uh, not for me. I'm not particularly fond of heights. I think I can make more money doing what I'm doing now if I continue on this path or whatever the case is. Uh and I had a couple customers who were firefighters. One in particular uh, became a good friend. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Enterprise Rent-A-Car is basically a, a, a replacement. If your personal vehicle is in an accident, you know you basically get a replacement vehicle while your car is being fixed. So my friend Benny, Benny Suarez, uh, was a firefighter. He would come in literally every day to switch into a new car while his car was in the shop. And basically, you know, would tell me, you know, I don't like this car. Can you switch me to this car? And I'm using this as a test to see, you know, which car I like that I might want to buy. And uh, we became really good friends. And 9-11 happened. And uh, I uh, basically was living in downtown Brooklyn right across. So you couldn't ignore it. it. It was no escaping it. And as I mentioned, my mother is a... Uh, has a PhD in nursing. She teaches nursing at Pace University. And I was scheduled to go in the next fire department class. 
and I was certified medically at this point uh, as part of my, you know, requirements for the job. And my mother being, you know, as high as she is in Pace University being two blocks from where the World Trade Center is, we went and volunteered and said, hey, we'll do whatever we can. At this point, there was military. There were cops all over the place. And uh, basically, cops escorted us to Ground Zero. And I wound up in a firehouse, which was 10 engine, 10 truck, uh, a.k.a. 10 house, which is literally across the street from, uh, you know, what the, the famous, you know, pit is, the, the pile. And uh, didn't even know where I was. I was just helping with uh, rescue operations and, you know, setting up a triage. And I cleared off a table to, uh, you know, had all debris on it. I cleared off a table and realized I'm in a kitchen. I'm in a firehouse kitchen because, you know, firehouse tables usually have, you know, writings and markings on them. So I cleared off this table and I realized, holy, holy shit, I'm in a firehouse kitchen. And uh, walked out the front door and realized, wow, I'm right at ground zero. And uh, basically spent the whole first 24 hours with my future colleagues and um, didn't get sworn in to the fire department until October. I got sworn in October 28th, uh, 2001. Uh, but, you know, like I, I, I got assigned to a firehouse that lost seven guys on 9-11. Um, well, you know, like I said, my story is kind of unique in the fact that I, I was there, even though I wasn't really on the job yet. Uh, so to answer your question, yes, that is what inspired me. Uh, because for the next couple weeks before I got called and told what my swearing date was, I was literally ready and on the verge of um, enlisting in the Marines because I was just personally so devastated with what happened, you know, not only to my country, but, you know, I'm born and raised in New York City. I'm here, you know, almost 42 years now. And, you know, this was like, you know, a slap in the face to all of us. And, I, you know, I didn't know what else to do. And I, I knew renting cars wasn't going to make me feel any better. So I needed to do something, you know, with my hands that I felt like I was giving back to the community and, and providing a service. And I was ready to go to the Marines. Um, I don't know if it's fortunate or not, but I received my letter from the fire department uh, within days of, that decision and realized, you know, maybe that's the route I should go and uh, found out at, subsequently at that same time that my friend Benny uh, was in fact uh, killed in 9-11 and swore to him that I would at least try out being a firefighter uh, because one thing that he always told me repeatedly was, hey, if you passed on taking the appointment to the fire department and you later on in life decide you want to be a firefighter, you can't. But if you take the appointment and you try it out and you don't like it, you can always go back to doing whatever it is on the outside you want to do. So I, uh, I, I said I would, you know, when I, I said I would do it in honor of him. And uh, it's now 15 years later, and I never regret it for one single second and feel like I'm, I'm extremely fortunate to uh, have been, you know, led down the path that I've gone down. And, of course, uh, I mean, I – we thank you so much for all, all you've done. Um, I mean, I was 10 when 9-11 happened, or I guess, yeah, I was 10. So, uh, I mean, I was an hour away, so I remember seeing the smoke. You could see it from Connecticut, which yeah. was pretty heavy, and I was lucky. My parents did not work in New York, but a lot of my friends' parents did. 
and it is pretty. It, it, it's interesting. Like there was just, I, I don't know. I mean, I go down to the Freedom Tower sometimes now, and it's really hard to believe that 15 years ago there was rubble there. Uh, they've done an amazing job, and yeah. it's because of good Samaritans who went to help that some that things are better now. So, I mean, really, all I can say is thank you again. I, I, you don't have to thank me. I mean, I appreciate you saying that, but you know, there was there was a there was a lot of other people, you know, besides just me doing everything they could. So, I appreciate you saying that, but it, you know, to me, it's 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 a it's a group and a team effort, and. Uh, it was really, you know, in trying to find the silver lining and all things, it was really kind of beautiful for a certain period of time after, you know, the dust started to settle, how much people, not only in this city, but in this country as a whole, came together, um, you know, as a result of that day. It seems like we've kind of lost that and gotten away from that some. Uh, and, you know, that's inevitable. That's life. Uh, but that was a moment I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the times after that when people really like stopped to talk to people in the street or, you know, look somebody in the eyes when you shook their hand or, uh, you know, you know, just polite things, hold the door for somebody, things like that. We, we really seem to reinvest in each other at that time. Yeah. Um, not quite as polite now, but we can all try to be a little more polite. I think that would be great. Um, so for people who don't really know a lot of firefighters or don't really know the firefighting schedule, um, what would you say is, or what would you say are a couple of things that might surprise the random person about what a firefighter does? For one, we never close. <laughs> so, um, you know, if you see us off on a Tuesday and you're cursing us because we're going to the beach on a Tuesday. Well, just remember that when we're working on a Saturday night and you're out at a birthday party or something, or when you're counting down the ball in times square and we're working or Christmas day, when you're opening presents with your kids, things like that. Uh, don't get me wrong. We, we don't all work on every holiday, but the point is somebody's always working. So, uh, we don't close. Um, that's that's one thing. Uh, I have actually gotten cats out of trees. That does happen. We do get called for that. Uh, but we respond to so much more than just fires. And especially in the world we live in now that, you know, everybody's very, you know, cautious and proactive. Um, you know, carbon uh, monoxide detectors have changed our job dramatically because, uh, we, you know, we go on all kinds of calls for, you know, gas odors and, and – uh, you know, CO detectors, and uh, it, it, it's really all across the board. I mean, our primary duty is to go to fires and fight fires, but, you know, we respond to car accidents. Uh, we go to, you know, medical emergencies, all kinds of stuff. So uh, it's really a full day, and uh, there's no limit to what we can or cannot be called to. I personally have been working for the blackout of 2004, so uh, I, I worked that night. I was all over Manhattan doing elevator rescues and uh, several fires when we came back to Brooklyn. Uh, I personally, myself, was working during Sandy. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a crazy, very crazy night. Um, you know, water was uh, neck deep in 
certain parts of the you know of Brooklyn, and it was just very chaotic. It's, it's very it's very troubling to be in a position of you know safety and helping people, and there's literally nothing you could do because you you know you're basically separated by you know uh, water from somebody and you know that that was kind of something that occurred in a couple of neighborhoods and uh yeah i i i don't know if you ask me something specific i might have a better better answer for you yeah i mean we're talking in generalities but one uh, one thing you mentioned is that it's a full day and it really is a full day right because your shifts are 24 hours long yes that is correct it is a it is a full day uh there every city uh and every department operates their schedule a little differently. Uh, where I am, uh, we have two shifts, a, you know, a day tour and a night tour. Um, and we're allowed to work them uh, consecutively, but for no more than 24 hours at a time. So you can combine a day tour and a night tour and work for a total of 24 hours straight, uh, which is typically the route we, we like to go. So, yes, it is a full 24 hours. That makes more sense. I know that there were some people who I've met who had to do like full seventy-two hour shifts, and I'm—I don't understand how you can do that. That must just be crazy, <laughs> like just really, yeah. really insane. I, I, I uh, like I said, every every city and every every department operates, you know, their schedule and their policies differently. But um, I, I've heard of some. Something like that where they'll work like 48 hours straight and then they'll be off, you know, for like three or four days and it just rotates like that. But, uh, yeah, our, our policies were, were, were mandated to not be able to work more than 24 hours straight. And that's more out of a, a safety concern than anything. They don't want somebody on their 26th hour that, uh, you know, gets hurt because of fatigue. Uh, so that's really what that's in place for more than anything. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think that that's about it. Are there any? Is there anything uh, before we sign off that you just want to leave us with? Any thoughts? Um, I realized I didn't plug anything that I do, so I should probably <laughs> go tell to the plug. <laughs> I should probably tell people if you're looking for me on Twitter, you can find me at People's Pen, and that's uh, People's with the Z, P E O P L E Z P E N. Uh, and if you're looking for any of the work I do, you can currently find that on YouTube. Uh, just search for Nickel Press TV, and um, pretty much do you know talk a lot of football, talk a lot of baseball, mostly fantasy related. But as I like to tell people on either side of the fence of that, I think if you're um, really only concerned about the real game and not fantasy, you can still get you know good information from fantasy writers. And if you're a fantasy guy, you can absolutely get good information from, you know, just real writers, if that makes sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to going to the Senior Bowl again. Like I said, this will be my third coming up. And uh, hoping, hoping you find a way to make it down there. And I'll be able to do some, you know, reversal of this interview and get you on camera and ask you a couple questions down there. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm doing. So, by all means, I, I, I'm laid back, straight shooter. Try to give my best where I can. So don't don't be uh, don't hesitate to hit me up if you got a question, sports related or anything for that matter. Yeah, um, and I am trying to make it down to Mobile. We'll see what happens there. 
But thank you so much for being on the show. Andy Singleton, at People's Pen on Twitter. So much good talk about football, about PTSD, and about uh, being a firefighter. Yeah, this was, we, we really circled the bases here. This was a good show. Very well-rounded. Quick show, too. We were able to close it within an hour. So hopefully we'll keep up these nice, concise shows. But that's it for this edition of Football and More with Ethan Hammerman. Until next time, talk to you later.